0: People
1: need
0: ordering 12 Rules Hi, welcome to 12 Rules for What, as ever. My name is Sam, and I'm really happy to be here with Professor Samir Desha, who is the Director of the Institute for the Humanities at Simon Fraser University and also Associate Professor there. Um, he wrote a really great piece, which we've linked in the show notes. Um, called Post-Human Fascism, it's also very brief, which is, um, you know, uh, a great virtue. So before you listen to this interview, I really recommend going and reading that piece, coming back, and so hopefully more of this discussion will make sense to you. Um, But we're gonna start fairly broad. You promoted a particular understanding of fascism um, using a definition that was uh, written first by, I think, um, Samir Amin. Which has two parts. So the first, the first part is that fascism is a response to a kind of a deep crisis in capitalism, um, and the second part is that it operates through um, the erosion of democracy. And you clarify this means liberal democracy. I think it's a useful clarification um, through the appeal to a collective identity. So, like this is a fairly pared down definition by the standards of definitions of fascism. Normally you get, you know, definitions of fascism that are whole kind of paragraphs of simply definition, lots of kind of lists. I wonder what, you, what is it about this particular definition, these two elements, the um, uh, response to the deep crisis and the erosion of democracy through collective identity that you find so compelling?
1: Yeah, well, I think, first of all, I'd just like to thank you, Sam, for the invitation um, to be on the podcast. I think uh, you're doing really great work. And um, I've I've learned a lot, actually, from listening to to previous um, uh, uh, episodes of it. Um, So the reason why I found the Amin uh, account of fascism so useful is because, um, I mean, I was obviously looking at it in terms of uh, framing the... um, uh, the introduction for Specters of Fascism, and, and Specters of Fascism really tries to take a, a global perspective. So Samir, sort of world, uh, Samir Amin's world system approach, was was quite helpful uh, in terms of having a sense of um, the, the the differences and similarities between center, semi-periphery, and Periphery, and, and that's also quite important uh, as well in terms of thinking about fascism in terms of a logic of endo-colonialism. Although he doesn't talk about that, but it, it does help set up that discussion as well. Um, I think it's also important, as you pointed out, to um, correct him a little bit. Um, so fascism isn't a, a categorical rejection of democracy per se, but of liberal democracy, and, and this becomes very clear in figures like Viktor Orban, right? Who um, uh makes a claim for illiberal democracy so there is a way in which fascists and and right-wing um populists or authoritarian populists also try to make a kind of case for um a certain sort of democracy but it's an exclusionary form and it's one that built upon some notion of 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 the general will um uh, the will of the people that um that is in somehow in in some way um uh, embodied in a particular uh, cultural tradition, which is itself um, taken up by and personified by uh, a strong leader. So I think these elements are, are particularly useful in thinking about uh, contemporary um, forms of fascism. You can you know, look at this in terms of Trump. You can um, uh, also usefully understand uh, um, Narendra Modi um, and Erdogan in in these terms, Bolsonaro uh, as well. And I think also from the standpoint of um, a a left response to uh, the rise of these authoritarian regimes, um, I I think it reminds us that we need to take liberal democracy seriously, um, that we can't take its institutions for granted. Um, We must move away from a kind of reified understanding, which means that we, uh, try not to think about these the institutions of liberal democracy as, as somehow, um, you know, uh, bequeathed by uh, the, the powers that be or somehow dropping from the sky. Rather, we must understand them as forms of, of struggle, historical struggles for inclusion on the part of uh, working men and women, LGBTQ plus peoples, indigenous, racialized peoples, and so on. And these are for the, you know, for the right to associate, organize, uh, obviously, the um, uh, the right to vote, um, for aspects of the welfare state, um, universal health care, you know, NHS in Britain, obviously, um, and and so on. Today, of course, we we think about this as well in terms of the kind of push you see in the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Um, for uh, um, you know uh, uh, left cabinet appointments and you know we've seen maybe a success one could say at least initially in terms of having the first indigenous person appointed as the secretary of the interior and I'm thinking of Deb Halland, uh in this case. Of course you know it remains to be seen what what she can do but I think it's it's really important that we um, both defend the institutions of liberal democracy and also in a sense uh, seek to um, uh, democratize
0: liberal democracy. Great, yeah, that's, that's uh, a really kind of, um, yeah, really kind of robust defense of, uh, I think some of the, or kind of pushback against some of the kind of more glib um, rejections on the, the the far left, certainly of um, all the manifestations of liberal democracy. And uh, yeah, so you the, the article that, you've, um, that everyone has now, of course, gone away and read, um, has a category of uh, post-human, fascism so i'm I, this is of course opposed to something else and i'm guessing what it's opposed to i think it, it says in the article it's opposed to anti-anti-humanism so um interwar fascism the the period of that we think about as kind of the classical fascist period is anti-humanist right um and in doing so it's just to kind of roll back universalist legacy of the enlightenment through um imperialism internationally um and also the workers movement and women's rights and racial depression within europe as well so um, and often these parts are two parts are conjoined, right? So the, the imperial endeavors and um, were somehow kind of echoed back into Europe, and this is the theory of endo colonialism, um, uh, in very very brief sketch. But it was also anti humanist in some some other ways, I guess. So so fascism is as Arendt puts it, um, dispensed with public life. Um, and made private individuals out of all citizens, stripping them of interest in and a connection with public affairs. And in this sense, it dehumanized people because it extracts them from their society, It of me atomizes them into their own kind of um kind of atomized mass. In the concentration camps and death camps, you know, these capacities for self-individualization were reduced again by uh, so, so aren't um, to a collection of reactions and reflexes. Um, but we're distinguishing between this anti-humanism and a post-humanism. Maybe you want to dispute the categorization of anti-humanism that I've given there, or the, the kind of characterization of anti-humanism i given there. And you, maybe you could also tell us what you think is different between this anti-humanism or the anti-humanism you'd characterize it as and post-humanism and what these mean as categories for fascism.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you for the question. And, um, you, you did uh, note uh, when mentioning the LA, LA uh, review of books piece, that it was a, a, a brief piece and, and one that, uh, certainly, um, could use some uh, elaboration, particularly around these concepts, and it's something that I, you know, I'm, I'm working on uh, and thinking about. Um, before I answer the question, I just have a, you know, just a, a quick um, anecdote uh, to to relate, which really sort of brought this this home. That is to say, it brought home some of the uncomfortable uh, overlaps between the far right uh, rejection of the Enlightenment legacy and uh, Um, what you see again within certain quarters of of cultural studies or identity politics or you could say decolonial left. Uh, I was at a seminar a couple of years ago where this young uh, UCLA historian was talking about how he taught uh, European history from a decolonial standpoint and basically went through um, some of the key moments of European history as we know it, you know, part of the, 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 the meta narrative of, um, uh, of European history and the Enlightenment. Um, so, you know, things like the, uh, the Renaissance and, and the, the, the Scientific Revolution, Reformation, the Enlightenment, um, French Revolution, constitutionalism, uh, and so on. And what came out of this approach was a kind of skepticism about the, um, let's say universalizability of certain aspects of this legacy, right? So it was a kind of skepticism. And um, in my question to him, I I noted that, you know, that skepticism is really shared on on the far right, you know, skepticism around, around science. skepticism around uh, constitutionalism, uh, skepticism around certainly the um, universalist legacy uh, of the Enlightenment and of the French Revolution. Uh, Fascism was geared specifically to a rolling back as you pointed out um, of the Enlightenment legacy, including uh, the French Revolution. and so I, I think it was very uncomfortable for him when I asked this question because it did seem that there is this kind of overlap um, in terms of a rejection uh, of uh, of this legacy. So this was one of the things that I want wanted to get at, and and you know we see this in the very definition of uh, of postmodernism, which relates very much um, to. A rejection of the universalism that you could say lies at the the heart of a certain kind of, you know, let's say, uh, critical humanism, and you see this in uh, in the in the very definition of uh, postmodernism in in um, the postmodern condition by Jean-François Léotard, at the beginning of the 1980s, which actually came out of a study commissioned by a province uh, uh, in in my country, which was Quebec. Um, and it was entitled uh, "Report on the, uh, the State of Knowledge," and Leotard basically rejects, or he says that postmodernism is a skepticism or incredulity towards meta-narratives, and these meta-narratives are um, those uh, the twin meta-narratives of uh, of Hegel and Marx, um, both of whom rely on a certain notion of Wissenschaft, right? Scientific socialism for Marx, and and the the, the science of logic um of Hegel and I think that this uh rejection of uh narratives in in um uh, the interest of or in favor of the local uh, uh narrative or you know the idea of of uh, um kind of local uh, uh language games a la Wittgenstein um you know is is a little bit uncomfortable today when we see so much skepticism um, uh, t- voiced towards not only liberal democratic institutions, but we could say procedures more generally, in procedures that could be, in a sense, said to be universalizable procedures. Um, but when we talk about science, we talk about the scientific method, and this is what seems to be really um, under under attack today. So I, I would say that the, the the idea of posthumanism is is uh, you know tied to a certain kind of rejection of uh, universalism that's also shared um, by the left uh, or certain elements of the left. I don't have to say that. It's always certain elements uh, of the left rather than the left um, uh, as a whole. So it also though entails the increasing sort of, you know, in, in terms of um, societal logics, the increasing obsolescence of the human being Um, via uh, technology, uh, machine learning, AI, and so on, and the constitution of increasing um, uh, uh, sways of of populations, human subjects, as abandoned subjects, or what Mbembe uh, calls a becoming black of the world and critique of black reason. Um, We see this uh, more recently in terms of the claim um, that the elderly ought to sacrifice uh, their lives for their grandchildren, great grandchildren, go out and participate in in the economy in the context of a pandemic. Um, also, I want to signal the fact that both, you know, right and left, um, uh, you know, not only. Uh, ab- abandoned a certain universalist legacy, but then also, I mean, especially in in terms of certain segments of the left, when they do that, they they abandon a certain kind of justification of of socialism, which I think really draws on that universalist um, uh, legacy of the uh, of the Enlightenment. So I think, in in the the, the middle part of the twentieth century, the, the you know twenties and thirties, uh, I think that um, it was really this legacy that was being contested. So Fast forward to today, I think you have a kind of more general skepticism that's shared by um, both right and left about this legacy. And I think that um, really needs uh, to be challenged. And, and one book that is challenging this very well, um, very brilliantly in fact, is uh, a book written by um, my former teacher, Atu Seshiotu, um, who's a brilliant Fanon scholar, but he's written now a, um, a collection of, of essays uh, entitled "Left Universalism," Africa-centric essays, where he tries, from an African perspective, he's based in Ghana now, to reclaim this um, radical uh, um, tradition of uh, the Enlightenment. And um, I think we need more of those kinds of, um, uh, re- you know, um, more of those kinds of arguments.
0: Right, so that's completely uh, different to what how I had read it. So that's really exciting. Um, the closest part that um, you get, gave here was with was the idea of, of um, what I guess has been like really kind of contentiously called surplus population, um, which seems to relate directly to um, what is really quite a, a well-established far-right theme of overpopulation, in the sense that the humans, um, particularly racial racialized groups of humans, are, have been rendered or always perhaps were in the case of the far right structurally obsolete and kind of um, can now be kind of carved off from humanity and only a limited number of humans will kind of be able to progress into the future. And therefore with that, you get the return of a kind of um, passive uh, or negative eugenics um, whereby people are kind of um, simply abandoned. Um, do you think that this is where um, new far right movements might emerge from in the context of global climate systems breakdown? From the, in some ways like the crisis of these disposable or the crisis of the existence of disposable categories of people in their view.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, I, I don't think we're so far apart in terms of our understanding of this idea of uh, uh, post-human fascism in so far as I do think it very much relates to um, the idea of abandoned subjects and, and, you know, the becoming black of the world. Um, and you, you do see this logic in play here in North America, uh, I can give you an example um, in um, very close to, to where I live actually where they're trying to put a, uh, a pipeline in that's to take um, bitumen from the Albertan tar sands into, um, you know, uh, markets uh, in in the Far East via uh, salt water. Although, of course, now the global downturn in the price of oil, I think, has really stalled the project um, but they're still trying, and um, I think what's interesting is that heretofore, it had really only been Indigenous uh, uh, lands that had been affected, and, and the state would um, use every means at its disposal to ensure that um, resources were extracted and, and, and um, transported uh, to markets as expeditiously and cost-effectively as possible, um, but now... As, as a pipeline nears uh, the the, uh, the ocean, it is actually going through uh, land owned by, uh, by settlers. And they are in a sense being treated to the same kind of um, heavy handedness uh, of both uh, the corporation and the state. So, I mean, I think that there's this you know, in a way, in a very kind of mild way, this could be understood as the becoming black of the world, in so far as um, the uh, the will of these citizen subjects uh, really becomes um, absolutely inconsequential to the uh, demands of uh, of the state and and capital to um, achieve uh, their uh, their conjoint uh, objectives. Um, so I think that this, um, the analysis that we've, we've been discussing you and I through correspondence of, um, of Marx's and capital, uh, of surplus populations that, you know, as, um, uh, created as a result of the tendential, um, uh, logic of capital accumulation is, is exactly right. And I think one of the things that, Um, has been pointed to is the way in which um, the creation of surplus populations has a profound decomposing effect um, on uh, um, uh, labor, creating these deep divisions and tensions between um, organized uh, labor on the one hand, and then those uh, workers in the informal sector, those workers who um, uh, work full time, but are highly uh, super exploited, those workers who are precarious, whose conditions of labor are, 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 are radically contingent, and those who were completely um, uh, excluded from the uh, labor market um, altogether. And I think one of the uh, profound Effects of such a decomposition is the rise of uh, identity politics. Um, you could see this in terms of the ethno-nationalism uh, that is coursing through the United States and also to some extent Canada and through uh, through Europe, um, as well as on the other side of it, uh, the rise of identity politics as a way for groups to. Um, uh, sees some form of uh, power under conditions of, of absolute abjection. And I think this is really key to understanding the way in which um, you know elements of the, the white working class are, are appealed to. Um, the appeal is, to a certain sense of security uh, that would be established through the the, uh, uh, erection and and fortification of of borders. Um, We also, I mean, can point to, and this relates to uh, the earlier example that I gave, um, the... uh, uh, way in which Mark Meadows admitted not too long ago, probably about a month and a half ago, that the White House had no plan to systematically tackle the coronavirus. Um, You could see here perhaps a calculation uh, that certain segments of the society, so not just the the elderly, um, who are of course economically no longer playing a role uh, that could be seen uh, as, uh, as, as socially useful, uh, you know, given capitalist conditions. Um, but um, uh, beyond that, the predominantly marginalized, racialized uh, labor force um, that uh, had been seen to be hit particularly hard right, it almost seems as if it were a strategy to just devastate uh, these communities as part of a larger uh, ethno-nationalist um, strategy. So these categories of, uh, of uh, workers, um, these forms of surplus populations, surplus labor um, are themselves entirely expendable. So I, th- I think you can see this logic uh, here and You know, certainly um, in the UK, with the um, formerly colonized uh, uh, populations in uh, major urban cities like London, Liverpool, Manchester, Birmingham, um, uh, Bradford, and so on, you have a similar kind of sense that um, these are the communities that are, that are hit particularly hard, both just in terms of their their physical health, but also we've seen the the study that just came out yesterday about how um, devastating the the, uh, the pandemic um, has been and and will be for some time to come um, on uh, on mental health.
0: Yes, so I think I think that's th- th- those feelings of uh, th- th- that kind of abandonment is absolutely. Um, essential to understanding how power might be operating um, at the moment and how power will continue to operate over the next few um, decades. I wanted to kind of go into this kind of, not only mental health aspect, but maybe like to open up the other side of um, your work, which is in psychoanalysis, or the kind of the politics of psychoanalysis. And you've read in one of your um, essays in this new book, Spectres of Fascism um, from Pluto Press 2020, go and get it, it's really great. Which is about which is about Adorno. Um, You talk about the figure of the little big man, and the kind of two aspects of that. On the one hand, King Kong, this kind of um, fantasy of immense power. On the other hand, uh, the provincial barber, right, who is a kind of uh, figure of like mundanity, and the splitting of these two. the splitting of the ego into these two figures allows the people, the fascist in Adorno's topology to um, understand themselves simultaneously as the victim and the kind of the, the powerful person. And, and so it's this kind of split between on the one hand, an assertion of power and a free, a real feeling of helplessness that kind of um, characterizes or kind of, uh, yeah, the, 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 fascist kind of subjectivity or kind of um, uh, psychology in some sense. Um, and this is definitely true. I mean, you get, and I think we're getting that increasingly um in contemporary extreme right groups, so kind of terroristic neo-Nazi organizations like um, the National Socialist Order in America or something like that, you get this kind of absolute assertion of sovereignty. But at the same time, you get really quite interesting movements like, for example, the rise in spirituality movements, which have increasingly a kind of slightly um, a, a, a racist edge, right? There's um, increasingly kind of a cosmic right um, aspect to these things. and Of course, you can keep kind of, QAnon at least partially into that so there's this kind of reassertion of sovereignty um, through um, either neo-Nazism or through a kind of um, autonomous um, spiritual practice. And I guess I, I I wonder if you could tell us, like you've spoken in, in conversation with um, uh, Vladimir um, Safetile, I don't know how to pronounce that. Um, yeah, we, we're about um, the proletariat, and proletarian consciousness, um, which I think is described as the, yeah, the force of negation, which has no predicate. Um, I wonder where you could think about these this in terms of, um, I guess, like a thoroughgoing anti-fascism, like about anti-fascism as a as a non-identity or an identity that kind of refuses its own identification. Um, maybe that's excessively Adornian. Um, is there a connection here between, on the one hand, a rejection of predicateness or like having a kind of predicate or being subject to a kind of uh, determination by power and the anti-fascist life to kind of borrow some terms from uh, Foucault.
1: Yeah, right. Okay, That—that's uh, there's a lot there. And Sorry, I'll, yes, that was yeah.
0: too many questions. <laughs>
1: um, it's great. I, I really appreciate the question. Uh, I, I think just to make a coherent answer will be perhaps a bit of a challenge, but I'll try. Um, I'll start with Adorno's analysis and go back uh, um, to the first uh, exchange and that was about liberal democracy and Samir Amin's um, definition uh, of fascism and and I think here's where we really need to focus on um, the contradictory nature of liberal democracy um, and how this then inherently creates um, Uh, tensions uh, within subjectivity, contradiction within uh, subjectivity, which you were alluding to, but I think we really need to uh, be clear about this. Um, So it's not, and this relates to the question of like an ethic of of an anti-fascist living. Um, We go very badly wrong when we say the problem with our present is that there are figures who possessed power or or sitting in in office like Trump and Bolsonaro and Modi and um, Orban and so on. All we need to do is get rid of these figures and we'll be fine. Obviously, you you would agree with that. Um, Then the the, the more sophisticated analysis is no, there are conjunctural conditions that give rise to movements and social forces that then put these kinds of figures in power, right? So we need to then address the structural uh, conditions. Um, And still we could have some notion of, you know, um, uh, the halcyon days of capitalism. And if we could only get back to like a New Deal liberalism, a Green New Deal is something that I definitely support and so on, so don't get me wrong there. But I don't think we're getting deep down enough in our analysis. And I think this is what Adorno enables us to do is that um, capitalism uh, isn't just um, an objective set of social relations, the contradiction between the means of production and the forces of production, the capitalist state and so on that we can understand in objective terms, but we also have to understand the way in which capitalism generates a certain form of subjectivity. Right, And so what he focuses on is on the way in which uh, liberal democracy has a particular contradiction built into it, which we could say um, waxes and wanes, um, but certainly under neoliberal capitalism over the last 40 years um, has really waxed. And this is the following, that on the one hand, Insofar as it's democratic, liberal democracy promises us not just voting rights, the ability to participate in a political process every so often, right? At the municipal level, the state level, regional level, and, and the national level. Um, Rather, what it does is it promises us the possibility of living an autonomous life. That is to say that we have both individually and collectively as a community, the ability to determine our own destinies. That's the great promise of democracy, right? Um, On the other hand, because democracy is wedded to the logic of capitalism, the market, Um, which is not a free market, um, but a market that is fundamentally regulated uh, by the state to capitalist ends, um, we find then that uh, our lives are increasingly dominated by not autonomy, but its opposite, heteronomy. There are all these forces that we can scarcely Uh, understand, let alone alter and change and control. So we are in this contradiction whereby uh, we um, are promised autonomy, but what's actually delivered by liberal democracy is exactly the opposite. And under neoliberalism, as I've suggested, and I think this is uh, 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 just a fact, um, we have less and less control uh, over our lives. So that creates this uh, sense of, uh, Anxiety, frustration, anger, um, which then is uh, channeled in um, very uh, 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 combustible political directions by um, authoritarian populists and 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 fascists who take advantage of uh, of, of this logic. So. When we see somebody like Bolsonaro or Trump or, or, or Modi, we see that they are both, in a sense, as uh, as they say today, relatable. You know, they are like us. Um, so they, in a sense, are are, are you know, in a, in a way, diminished subjects. Right? We can relate to them in our own insufficiency and inadequacy and um, uh, uh, um, uh, outsiderness, as it were. But at the same time, they embody the image of power and strength, which they turn against the other, which they um, uh, 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 seek to mobilize um, their forces against um, the stranger, right, the non identical, and which we both participate in vicariously, we take a kind of, or the follower, I'm not saying myself or you, but the follower will then take a vicarious kind of interest and pleasure in that extirpation. But that's what we increasingly are encouraged to do as followers. Uh, We see this in the rallies, we see this in, you know, random attacks on uh, on marginalized, racialized People, LGBTQ uh, uh, plus people, especially trans people. What the authoritarian can never countenance is ambiguity, right? And what the queer person represents is ambiguity, as almost a political gesture. And this cannot be tolerated by the authoritarian. So, yeah, I mean, what what the 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 great um, uh, the little great man uh, represents, the composite of uh, King Kong and a suburban barber, represents as is this constellation almost as a kind of dialectical image of the autonomy, the sovereignty, and heteronomy uh, of uh, liberal democratic society. So I will both subordinate myself to to my leader, and I'll be excessively cruel to those who are marginalized, who have less power than me. So I both feel powerful, but I'm also ultimately, at the end of the day, powerless.
0: I think this also gives a really clear explanation of why it is that the military has formed such a um cohesive and also propulsive um symbolic system for uh the fire movements for the last 100 years um but also because of the experience of the military seems to me to be um i mean i'm not in the military and i've been in the military so this is very much talking a kind of a second or third-hand experience but seems to be for both uns junger and for people who you know come back from the vietnam war and um Form, reform the KKK and for people who return from the Iraq war and become um, you know members of uh, white nationalist organizations in uh, the alt-right and so on right what seems to be common across these experiences is an attempt to find in military prowess a form of self-control that the military seems to offer being by you become the kind of consumer self-declared and self-determining person and of course what modern war since you know uh, the mid-19th century actually means and maybe even before that i'm not a military historian either um maybe even before that actually entails is as you say an absolute heteronomy um you have no control over what you do you are subject to vast systems of logistical um Kind of coordination that you just don't understand at all, and so what you get in the various kinds of um, experience that people kind of report from you know the Free Corps to you know the, the KKK to you know the, the, these uh, contemporary war veterans is this experience of attempting to radicalize the military experience um, that didn't go far enough that didn't allow them enough personal control because it didn't allow them enough violence or didn't allow them enough lassitude to um, take out violence. Um, you get these very kind of strange uh, and horrifying testimonials from people, um, and they say, you know, I, I got to, I, of course, I killed people in Iraq and I killed people in Afghanistan and so on, but I was always, you know, told by my commanding officer I shouldn't, and that was the that was the kind of the shame. The shame was not in 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 the murderousness. I wanted to kind of um, think about the yeah this this other question I was asking earlier about the negative. Um, identity or the non-identity or the, the identity of the non-identical or something like this, right? Um, whether or not we're doing Hegel or Adorno or Marx or any. Um, how how do how do you think this this works in think in thinking about how you might live in a way that is opposed to fascism at this microscopic state or at this kind of psycho, psychoanalytic state? You know, how how does this give us a path forward?
1: Yeah. Okay, that, that's right. I, I, I did. Um... Uh, uh skirt that question i think it's the most interesting aspect of, of um the series of questions you you raised and i <clears throat> i have come back to the point that i made earlier and that is that you see a mirroring of an identity politics of um the right in an identity politics of the left um and i think that identity form formations such as this have to engage precisely in an extirpation of the non-identical, right? So, you know, I'm a member of X or Y ethnic group. And that means that that identification takes priority over other um, aspects of my identity. Um, that could be related to sexuality. It could be uh, related to um, class uh, affiliation. Could be uh, related to uh, any number of things. Um, and you know, people who advocate intersectionality, which want underst- to w- you know, which wants to understand identity is produced at the intersections of. Uh, complex structures of, of oppression will challenge me on that and challenge this kind of argument. But I think what, when it comes down, when push comes to shove, there's always one identity that seems to take priority over others. And that leads then to this um, uh, repression of, or extirpation of what doesn't fit right, Um, of what must must get brushed away in order for individuals to be subsumed beneath these more general categories. And I think there is an authoritarian logic. And I've written about this in terms of uh, art, for example, when you have um, certain advocates of uh, and self-appointed representatives of certain communities saying, X um, object or X painting or X performance must go because we're offended as a group. Well, I mean, is that the case? What democratic procedures led to that outcome? I'd be very interested to know, but it doesn't happen in this way. You have an authoritarian kind of um, uh, 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 pronouncemento about what um, the, the, the the position is, uh, what is to be countenanced and what is not. So I think right there, um, there is a, a, a problem with identity politics. It's inherently authoritarian. But going beyond that, in the intersectional analysis, there is this tendency to say that we need to look at um, gender, sexuality, uh, ethnic identity, and class. So class, in a way, gets um, uh, uh, simply tagged Uh, on to these other kinds of identifications. And I think that this is exactly the wrong way to look at it because these things are not equivalent, right? If I have a particular ethnic identity or certainly a particular kind of gender identity, I want that to be recognized, right? I want that to be affirmed through the use of pronouns, for example, this is why pronouns are so important because this is how people will identify um, others in the public sphere. And that's very much central to their, their reality and their sense of being, right? Recognition. Now with class, if we're just simply engaged in a kind of social democratic sort of analysis, say, okay, class is always gonna be with us. There's always gonna be class divisions and it's a matter of simply of you know, uh, redistributing wealth such that those um, you know, uh, within the working class and let's say the, you know, surplus labor, uh, will um, be uh, looked after and, and given certain minimal welfare payments or, or uh, unemployment benefits or whatever, that's fine. But the idea from advocates of intersectionality is a much more radical one. Well, if you're really gonna be radical about class, what you want is, in fact, the abolition of class, not its recognition. And that means a radical transformation of society. And that's why we want to say that class identity doesn't have um, predicates in this sense, that what a proletarian identity signifies is precisely the demand for its own dissolution, right? It's own dissolution, um, when we start giving predicates to proletarian identities, we get into very, very difficult um, uh, kinds of political logics because they, are, they have a tendency to become very exclusionary very quickly for the kinds of empirical, historical, and sociological reasons that we talked about earlier in terms of these conflicts and tensions that arise through the decomposition of um, the working class. Right. And you end up, you know, as Trump was musing uh, just prior to the, the election in twi- in the spring, prior to the election of 2016, you know, I, I want to transform the Republican Party into a workers' party. Well, you can imagine exactly where that logic ends up. And it becomes very much like national socialism. So um, this is precisely why we insist that the, pr- the proletarian identity is a thoroughgoing negative identity, one that, actually seeks its own negation. So this is the negation of the negation, right? The negation of class as such. And that should be the utopic horizon uh, uh, upon which we're functioning. And why not also then extend that to other identities? That becomes a more difficult argument for the reasons I gave earlier. But I think that's probably where utopia lies. And it it is in some sense, I think, what Herbert Marcuse meant in terms of polymorphous perversity. This, is, this should be what we're aiming for.
0: I have a question about how that relates to uh, to comradeship, but I, I realized that we're a podcast about the far right and we should stick to that, to, to that topic. I think it's really important. I, 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 I do have,
1: a, have a, yeah. um, a, sh- a kind of panel discussion with Jody Dean at the end of January. So that'll probably come up. And, and the yes. reconstruction her of allyship is fantastic for precisely this reason. So you re re-inscribe a notion of national sovereignty when you assert the importance of allyship. Well, I think it's very similar with the kind of proprietary relationship that people have vis-a-vis their own identities, right? The, my identity is my property and so hands off, right? Well, that's interesting. That is a thoroughgoing neoliberal logic at the level of, in a sense, ontology, right? At the level of who who one is, or who one thinks one is, you know?
0: I've been thinking uh, um, for about two years, I guess now, more or less exclusively about fire politics. Do you think that it's necessary to have Even when you're doing kind of anti-fascism, which seems to be to me a um, a politics almost that only knows utopia negatively, but and not only that it only knows utopia negatively in the Adornian sense, and that it um, all it can hope for is um, the end not of fascism but of the possibility of fascism. That is the classless society we call communism, right? Um, It can only it it seems that the anti-fascism's utopia becomes out in this kind of strict negative manner but that strict negative manner is also, is also often quite small and quite kind of um, puritanical in various mm-hmm. ways. And I, I wonder how do we um, now kind of you know, final question about like the relation between fascism and far-right side as an academic pursuit and anti-fascist movements. Um, and I wonder what you think the connection is there. I think this project that you know, this podcast is an attempt really to kind of bridge that gap, um, to think about how the two things can kind of fit together, because it seems to be that they're talking at cross purposes very often. Anti-fascist movements develop structures, identities, um, elaborate rules. And at the same time, that I totally agree with the kind of this um, aspect of the theory that, that tries to negate the form of identity. So how do you see these two things sitting together, the academic dispute pursued on one hand and the the, the movement structure on the other?
1: Oh, that's a really good question. I would introduce a third term here, and I and I would maybe place you in that in that third term. Um, so there's sort of um, academic discourse, and then there's you know movement politics, um, but then there's also an intellectual uh, um, intervention as well. And the intellectual and the academic are not always the same, and those two are often in, 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 in quite a bit of tension. You know, um, academia is very much oriented towards disciplines and you know, um, institutions and organizations within the academic sphere that organize conferences and journals, and one has to get tenure and then get promoted and one has to publish in the right places and and network with the right people. So I think that um, that is a rather more complex set of uh, uh, forces and, and constellation of institutions Whereas I think the most interesting work that gets done is in that intellectual sphere, because intellectuals are also, right from their very you know, inception with the Dreyfus crisis, um, they're engaged. Uh, they're engaged with the public sphere, I think, in, um, in, in different ways, both on the left and on the right. Um, and I, I think with the, the activists, there is unfortunately, and there has been now for some time, a kind of anti-intellectualism there's anti-academia and I think there's some justification for that for the reasons I just mentioned Um, but it can often be anti-intellectual and I think with Antifa and with many anarchist formations there is this move to shut down discussion and I think this is in a way mirroring the very thing that you're trying to confront and this is one of it's a, a, a criticism that Adorno had of uh, of the West German students movement, right? He was very supportive of them, but he also detected a kind of authoritarianism that drove them in their attempt to confront, in a sense, the, the real afterlife of fascism. They were right in identifying that afterlife, and we're seeing it today in, in the German police force and the military. Um, in civil society, but of course, this is from the, the former DDR more than, than, than the former um, uh, Federal Republic. But nonetheless, there, and, and I think this is why Adorno hooks up so well or links up so well with, with um, Foucault's preface to Antioedipus, because it is about trying to come to terms with the fascism that we harbor uh, within ourselves. And our responses to fascism right? They can, in a sense, in, uh, be a, a form of, uh, you know, to use an adorning term, mimesis. We, we, we mimic that which we want to somehow try and overcome. And this is a real uh, danger. And I think we see this so much. And it gets back, let's, let's, in a sense, bring it full circle back to the question of liberal democracy, that the increasing attempt to engage in censorship to shut down book publishers, to shut down art exhibitions, to cancel people for things that they may say that are found to be objectionable um, is highly problematic because these are in a way Gestapo tactics. Um, You know, the Antarctica Kunst exhibition is something, you know, we could see something like that today that's put on by the left. I mean, no joke. And I think we have to really question how it is that we got to this point and how is it that it's the right that is making these specious and cynical arguments for free speech and the left really doesn't want to touch the issue anymore, right? Why is that? Um, I think that spells part of the, the kind of, you know, deeply um, convoluted times in, 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 in which we live, you know?
0: So the, um, you've got a new book out, Pluto Press um tell us about specters of fascism i hear it's the first volume of a two-part uh thing that's going on so tell us about the first part and then tell us about what might happen for the, the collection of essays in the second part
1: well, where, where did you hear that about uh, it being the first part of, of uh, a larger project
0: on another podcast that you did uh with the university with simon fraser university I think.
1: Ah, okay. is it not true um i might have uh misrepresented myself i mean i i would like to actually take up um more specifically Adorno's uh, contribution to understanding uh, fascism. And, and I think the way I would wanna do that is to, to sort of pose the question of whether or not we can understand Adorno's entire uh, work as a kind of anti-fascist philosophy. Insofar as one of his first engagements is with, uh, with the work of Martin Heidegger. Uh, and that continues all the way through to negative dialectics. And if there's any philosophy that could, I think, uh, claim to be a fascist philosophy, um, it's Heidegger's. And there's various nuances to that. So I think setting up this confrontation uh, would, uh, would be very worthwhile. So maybe that's the, the second part of it. But here's, here's the book here. Um, and, and just very briefly, it's organized in uh, three parts. And these three parts were part of uh, a um, what, what we called a, f- a free school at the Institute for the Humanities, which I'm director of at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver. And uh, you know we were so alarmed at, at some of the developments that were happening uh, around the world, not least the, the election of um, Donald J. Trump um, in the United States, that we felt that we should respond to this. And this is part of the, the mandate of the, the Institute is to respond um, by drawing on the tradition of the humanities Um, to the sort of central questions of our age. So we had a a series of of lectures divided into um, a a kind of theoretical segment uh, uh, or historical segment, um, theoretical segment, and then um, looking at sort of contemporary realities. Um, So the book really uh, came out of that. And it was very much a a public oriented um, uh, uh, exercise. And one of the things that we made very, clear was that in uh, these evenings that we, we had, I mean, uh, virtually all of the lectures were in the evening, that the first half of the lecture would be precisely that, uh, um, a talk, and then a question period, be very much focused on intellectual um, uh, matters. Then the second half would be social. The, uh, we had a DJ who, um, who curated music that was specific to the theme or topic of the night. And there'd be some dancing, refreshments would be had Uh, some snacks. Um, And that was in the spirit of a recognition of the fact that one of the aspects of the appeal of fascism, and this is, uh, you know, this comes directly out of Hannah Arendt's work, is a sense of isolation, right? People feel isolated. Um, They feel deracinated, and they then feel some sense of uh, belonging in uh, the mass. So we thought we, we ought to try and concretely counteract this in um, in a, a space that's both within the university but also outside of it, we had most of our um, uh, events at this uh, small art gallery in Gastown in Vancouver uh, called uh, Unit Pit uh, Projects. And it was a wonderful space in which we could, you know, have these uh, talks. And also this place that is now defunct called Selector Records. Uh, it's it's one of the um, many casualties, not of the pandemic but of the the larger. Um, problem, and you, you know this uh, in in Britain and in London in particular of, of uh, gentrification. Um, so that was uh, the the context out of which this uh, this book uh, ha- has come. And so far, the you know the reception has been very uh, uh, very engaged and, and positive.
0: Yes, all but all books should emerge from uh, kind of parties, I think. Um, yeah. What what music did uh, they play? Was it kind of can't be Kurt Vile, right? Like uh, you know, surely not. Yeah.
1: There was there was definitely uh, some Kurt Ball. I mean, when we had uh, a talk um, on the Spanish Civil War, there was of course Spanish bombs by the Clash and um, you know uh, sort of reggae anti-fascist uh, uh, music and all kinds of things. We had a, a terrific um, sort of professional DJ who uh, who volunteered his time to to do this. So it was it was great.
0: There'll be a there'll be a playlist in the in the show notes. Um, thank you very much Um, go and check that book out Um, it's a really fantastic collection of essays we've only touched on very very few of the the kind of many 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 parts of that that book Um,
1: I guess there was no point for me to to, if you could hold it
0: up if you want but uh, no I'll be able to see (laughs) but thank you very much for being here Uh, thanks for listening and um, I'll see you again very soon
1: thanks very much Sam
0: and I'd like to leave you with what is indisputably the greatest piece of anti-fascist music ever made the link is in the show notes.
1: government, we are the enemy. In a world where there is no government, anarchy rules. This summer, get ready for the most action-packed podcast.
0: We continue fighting because we hate all authority and love
1: freedom, which cannot be given, but must be taken. Such scenes as... This is not a dialogue, a crime called freedom, Party's over, and many, many more. For more text and audio material of interest to anarchists, check
0: out ResonanceAudioDistro.org Thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoyed that, then you can help support the podcast on Patreon. All the support we get means a lot to us and it really does help us grow this project. So that's patreon.com slash 12rules for what? And you can sign up for as little as $2 a month. Thanks a lot, and I will see you very soon.
1: 12 Rules